everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hi, all of our Bulletproof Hygiene listeners. Welcome to another week. I'm really, really excited this week, and I hope that uh, you've got some time to really dig in and listen and, and maybe even take some notes today. Um, today, we are talking about what I believe to be a game-changing opportunity in our profession. And every day in our operatories, we face an invisible enemy. Our patients are inundated with oral pathogens that drive disease that is way more risky to their quality of life than just red, puffy, bleeding gums. The research and the studies are clear. What happens in the mouth doesn't just stay in the mouth. The inflammatory cascade, the oral pathogens, the toxins that drive our patients' periodontal disease puts them at risk for life-threatening diseases. And when we as clinicians try to manage these pathogens without really knowing what we're up against, we're basically shooting in the dark and hoping we're doing what's best without really knowing if we're hitting the target. And honestly, it's a very dangerous game to play with our patients' lives, especially considering that because of modern technology, we don't have to practice in the dark anymore. Today, I am humbled and truly honored to spend some time with Dr. Tom Neighbors as we discuss salivary testing and the role it can and should be playing in our daily practice. And in all honesty, I'm fangirling a little bit today um, because I have had the privilege of sitting under Dr. Neighbors' teaching for many years um, through the AOSH, the American Academy of Oral Systemic Health. And so this is a big deal to me, and I'm very, very honored that he has um, taken some of his time out to be with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Neighbors, for being here today. Well, thank you so much for inviting. It is truly my honor. Thank you for the work that you and uh, Brittany are doing. Uh, I love your title, The Invisible War, because it certainly is. Yeah. Uh, and um, I would... Um, I would just be honest to say that this is the war that I've been fighting now for, for a long time, both as a clinician and uh, also as a researcher, and then eventually, you know, as building uh, the first lab. Yes. And I want to give just a little bit of background so our listeners know sure. a little more about you. So Dr. Neighbors has invested 54 years in oral medicine between private practice, research, and teaching. He truly is the father of salivary testing in the United States, and he has spent the last 40 years researching and developing a clearer understanding of the connections between periodontal disease and systemic disease. He was the first dentist to use phase contrast microscopy and DNA lab reports as diagnostic and treatment models. Based on a dramatic improvement in treatment results from using DNA testing, Dr. Neighbors founded Advanced Dental Diagnostics with a lab based in Germany, and it became clear that a clinical laboratory in the United States was necessary, which led to the genesis of oral DNA labs. 
And that was the first CLIA-approved lab to use salivary diagnostics for identifying periodontal pathogens, genetic variations, HPV-related oropharyngeal cancers, and systemic inflammation. And he really did introduce the intrinsic value of salivary testing to the medical community via the Bale-Denine method of prevention of heart attacks and ischemic strokes. He continues his research to improve ways to help dentists and hygienists to improve both the oral health and the overall health of their patients. And today he is the chief officer of Direct Diagnostic Labs, where he works to forward salivary testing to bring collaborative health between the dental and medical world. So Dr. Neighbors, of course, I've got to ask, you know, you were the first dentist to pull out a microscope. Tell me a little bit about your journey. What, what started this curiosity for you? Well, I appreciate that so much, and I'll try to keep this very brief, but, you know, we all have those points in our life where we have uh, a, a division in the road, and we either take the left road or we take the right road, and um, fortunately, as a young dentist, I joined the U.S. Navy, and there I was able to rotate through the specialties, uh, oral surgery, uh, perio, and um, endo, and uh, general dentistry, which was very helpful because I moved to a small town in Mississippi of about 25,000 people. And the, the only specialty we had uh, there were two orthodontists. Uh, we needed the uh, periodontist, we needed the oral surgeon and the endodontist, and I became all three. And as a result of that, I was invited to be um, a staff member in the hospital. And I saw a lot of things as a young dentist that most of us don't see today, uh, but I became very, very interested quickly in what we were doing at Perio. And the reason was, was the unpredictable nature of what we were doing. Early on, I was treating my own patients because small town, I didn't have a dental hygienist. So I, let me just say this. I truly have an admiration and a love affair with hygienists because I know how work, how hard the work is. I've been there <laughs> myself. And uh, I ultimately built a practice of three doctors and six hygienists around perio of all things. Uh, so that's kind of unique for, uh, I think, a, a dentist. But um, back in 1983, I became very um, disillusioned uh, with what we were doing. Uh, we were doing what we call phase one periotherapy, which was non-surgical. Then we moved into phase two therapy if they didn't get better. I got tired of doing periosurgery. Uh, those patients were not doing much better than the other ones were. In an article, actually it was a study, a five-year study that was published in 1985, said that really long-term non-surgical treatment is as predictive as surgical treatment is based on the healing results. So with that, <clears throat> I um, went to um, Washington, uh, spent some time um, with... Um, the inventor really, uh, the research inventor, uh, Paul Kies of using phase contrast. And Paul uh, taught several of us how to use the microscope, which I immediately gravitated to. So as I move forward using about the phase contrast about 23 years, recording biofilm before and after and keeping records of those people, I saw that if we changed um, and, and began to use medication along with our scaling and root planning, uh, then we would get better results. And this was a learning process. By 1996, we were actually new causative agents, at least three of them, a perio, and uh, they were AAPG and TF at that time. 
And I said, well, gosh, if those are the real causative ages, based on what I've seen on, on uh, microscopes, there's a heck of a lot more species under the microscope than those three. So is there a laboratory that actually can help us look for that? And there was no laboratory in the US, found the German laboratory and I began to order tests from Germany. So I'd send saliva via paper point uh, testing to Germany to get those reports. And that was really the key to personalizing these biofilm communities. And I began then to photograph all my patients and along with all the traditional models, I began to present photographs before and after, radiographs before and after, and DNA reports before and after. And so by 2003, we had created a model using anti-infective therapy from people like Jurgen Slots and Tom Rams and those that are really have been involved in the research around the virulence factors of these specific microbes. And as a result of that, you know, I realized, as you said there, we needed a lab in the US. So uh, we formed the first salivary diagnostic lab in the United States. And then Brad Bale and uh, Dr. Bale and Dr. Donine called me in 2010. Um, you know, you have those moments in life that you remember. And uh, uh, one of the moments in life I remember was when as John F. Kennedy was killed, I, I know exactly where I was at that time. We all remember where we were in 9-11. Uh, we right. remember the point yep. where we were. My hygienist at that time, <clears throat> will tell you where she was when Elvis died. Um, I can't tell you for sure where I was when Elvis died, but you know, we always, we have those moments and those points of interest that, you know, um, matter to us. Right. I remember the time when Dr. Bale called me and I was coming back from lunch and this energetic physician said, I can't wait to come visit you. And so the, Dr. Bale and Dr. Dean came to my lab and, um, from then on, we became instant friends, and they've required salivary diagnostics as part of their method uh, to guarantee heart attacks, guarantee that you will not have a heart attack and stroke, and guarantee that you will not, um, you know, have diabetes and now even Alzheimer's disease. So if you want a doctor that says they guarantee that you won't die of a chronic illness like that, they will guarantee that you have to use a salivary diagnostic test along with all the other testing, and that's the kind of doctor I want. And by the way, I wish we could guarantee implants. I wish we could guarantee that we could heal periodontal disease right. uh, and those types of things. And those are the directions that we're heading. Yes, I, I certainly hope so. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with that. Well, I know you've had a recent shift. So I know you started Oral DNA Labs and I've been a user for years, uh, been a big believer. I've written a couple of articles for, the, for, you, for them. Um, but I know you've had a recent shift um, over into um, di direct diagnostics and the HR5 test. And I wanted you to tell us a little bit about why, why you made that jump. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Well, um, after uh, we sold Oral DNA, um, I became the chief dental officer for... Um, who was it? The uh, large laboratory for it wasn't. Um, hmm, is it in your paper there? I'm trying to think who we sold uh, oral DNA to. Um, Quest Diagnostics. Anyway, yes, Quest. There we I, go. I served as your chief dental officer at uh, Quest Diagnostics, and um, after I left Quest, I continued to study the research, and I, as I continue today on the microbiome, the entire microbiome. The human microbiome is fascinating. Uh, and maybe another time we'll talk about that, the important role of humans. Uh, we are now called superorganisms, or we are called bacterial planets by one. And so it's really amazing that um, 
we have roughly 10 times more microorganisms living on us and in us than we have human cells. So it's important that we understand the microorganisms that are there and their role to play, and also their role to play relative to immunity. How do specific microorganisms affect our immune system and drive infection? So as an example, we look at COVID. Well, how does a tiny organism like COVID cause the dreaded diseases that we're talking about today? So the point that I make here is as I look at the, the literature today, and even as we look into the literature as late as 2021, just a few months ago, when we look at an analysis of 65 years of oral microbiology, what do we come up with relative to understanding all of the species in the mouth? And what the final conclusion is from multiple studies is, even though there are over 700 species of bacteria, viruses, fungi, and other forms, most of those are helpful. In fact, they're all designed for the purpose of working together to begin the digestion process, to make sure that they protect us. In other words, our mouth is an open environment, and yet we are exposed to viruses and bacteria from many different sources. So these bacteria are really designed to protect us. Unfortunately, due to our diet, <clears throat> primarily due to lifestyle and so forth, some of us are become, um, some of the bad bacteria become associated with the healthy ones. And if allowed to proliferate enough, then they actually take over the environment. And it doesn't take many of these high-risk pathogens to actually take over the entire environment. So bottom line is what I learned prior to joining direct diagnostics is that we can make testing uh, more efficient by narrowing the, the focus, and we can also make it more affordable. Uh, for our patients. And that really did delight me. And also technology is changing. The type of PCR we're using is somewhat different than the original, but also we are heading toward handheld devices. So you won't even need to send a salivary test to your laboratory or to our laboratory. You will get the report back in your office in 20 minutes. Wow, that's, that's incredible. That excited me. Yes. And so I was asked to be a part of this laboratory creating the FDA approval for the handheld device. COVID came up, so then we moved into this uh, world of what we now call clinical laboratory testing. So bottom line, here's what happens. <clears throat> um, AA is by far, or I think our group knows, right? What AA is, would you say yes. that? Yes. Yeah, we do certainly because of testing and let's just use the abbreviations rather than using terms like aggregatobacter, actinomycin, combinant, and so forth. Yes. We know that from the studies uh, done at Forsyth, which is now Harvard, that they had AA and PG by far are true pathogens based on the virulent factors and based on their ability to create an immune response so excessive that it will cause alveolar bone loss and it will cause systemic inflammation. And these microorganisms can travel throughout the circulatory system and cause inflammation inside the endothelial lining that we would cause dysbiosis, can cause form, form cell formation, can cause inflammation that breaks in the endothelial lining and can cause a heart attack or stroke. And I'm using the word causes 
and I see you shaking your head. You know the yes. word. I mean, right. there's level there's level A evidence. Absolutely, yes. there yes. is. And so what I what the literature is saying is that when you get a su sufficient number, particularly of AA and PG, and those are called keystone pathogens, uh, TF and TD are high risk. So I would say AAPG are extremely high risk and that TF and TD are high risk and that FN, which is our fifth, we call this HR5, is risky depending on the genetic variation and whether or not it's in contact with PG or not. So uh, FN is an outlier. And so we have to be very careful with FN because it can be a health associated based on genetic variation or it can be a pathogen if it's in contact with PG. So kind of concluding is what I wanna say is I wanted a new test, number one, that would narrow down the species based on true disease causing bacteria. Literature says AAPG, TF and TD are now the ones that really cause disease and we don't want them in our mouth. How do they do that? Well, when they become late colonizers, become involved in the biofilm themselves, the way they interact, in other words, the communication process, and one that is particularly important is gene transfer. These organisms transfer their virulence or their pathogenic potential to the entire biofilm. So in the biofilm, and you see the other report of orange complex and then green complex. Well, what we have found, and I've shown many case studies now to verify that, is that these four organisms in particular transfer their genes, particularly A and PG, to health-associated bacteria or moderate pathogens, and everything in the biofilm becomes pathogenic. That's and crazy. It's crazy, uh, and but they do that in a number of ways, which I won't go into this discussion. Uh, maybe another time we can actually illustrate how that happens through diagrams and so forth, but it's important to know that A and PG are extremely high risk for all the events associated with losing teeth, alveolar bone loss, gingival inflammation, and so forth. And they are scaling and, and, and replaning resistant. What does that mean? They live inside the tissue. They are not necessarily just in what we see. Because they have invasive potential, they can invade in the interstitial spaces, they can invade even the cells, such as squamous cells. So they evade the immune system. They don't get killed by the immune system. Uh, and so when we scale and replane, then obviously we're, we're doing a good job of removing the biofilm that's on the tooth, but we're not doing anything for the tissue. And I see you nodding your head there because when we have A and PG there, unless we're using some chemical that kills in the, tish, in the tissue, they come back very quickly. We can remove uh, some of them, uh, certainly that is there, but we can't remove all of them. So that's one of the reasons people relapse is because at the end of scaling and root planning, we have, in fact, a research uh, was done on that. And when we have, have these high-risk pathogens, scaling and root planning, at the end of conclusion of scaling and root planning, we've left 67% of causative bacteria at the end of our completion of therapy. No wonder people relapse. And so if we aren't testing, we have no way of knowing whether or not we've actually achieved the goal and that's removing causative agents. So when we look at this biofilm community in conclusion, a number of things I wanted to do. One, I wanted to narrow it down because that's where the, 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 um, that's where the science is today. 
I've shown in case studies, when we eliminate AA and PG particularly, the orange complex almost goes away. We don't even focus on, in fact, if you've been using the other test, where do you focus? You focus high risk, right? Right, correct, yes. And, but look at your case studies and look what happens to moderate risk pathogens once you control the high risk. The bottom line is that is important to know and that really confirms what uh, Sokransky and Hafiji were saying in their 10-year longitudinal trial. And that is we know AAPG, TF, and TD are high risk, but we're not really sure about PI and FN and uh, C, um, uh, uh, CR and CS and all the rest of the orange complex. We're not really sure about those. But what we know today is these high risk ones are the ones that control the rest of them. And when we control the high risk, we control the rest of them. Got it. People get well, by the way, and I'm sure you've seen that too. We can cure periodontal disease and we don't have to just maintain it. Hey, Bulletproof Hygiene listeners. We have some big, exciting news. We are proud to announce that our 2022 summit is happening in Nashville, Tennessee, June 3rd and 4th. Come join us for a weekend of growth, learning, and collaboration. We'll be taking deep dives into team culture, leadership, hygiene systems, and patient care and education that bring fulfillment, career success, and practice profitability. This course has the potential to change the trajectory of your career and help you practice at the top of your game. If you missed us in 2021, trust us, you don't want to miss this. Visit BulletproofSummit.com to get all the details and observe your spot. We can't wait to see you there. So another reason that I wanted to have another test is because of genetic variations. If we look at COVID, what are we dealing with today? Well, we're looking at the third generation of COVID. So we've had three generations of a virus that we call COVID. Well, guess what? AA has six genetic variations that we know of. PG has multiple genetic variations. TF, TD, and FN all have multiple genetic variations. And these genetic variations have different virulence. So what what I wanted to do is develop a test that included, let me kind of back up, the first test that we created using DNA-PCR was to look at single genetic variation because that's all we knew back then. And so when you use a test that's looking at a single genetic variation, it's good report, but it does include the other genetic variation. So you can say, well, gosh, we eliminated this AA. The question is, did we eliminate all of the other five AAs? We don't know that because we aren't testing for that. Got it. And so what we have done with this test is we had our uh, microbiologists build a model whereby we're looking at all the genetic variations of AA, all the genetic variations of PG, and the rest of them that are there. And I determined that it would be too confusing for us in the beginning to put that many lines on a report. Right. But if we put it in a single line, and the clinician knows that if you're looking at AA, you may be looking for the JP2 clone of AA, not the one that we originally started with. So we've included all AA. So if you do an, a report and you don't find AA on your report, if you do a, a saliva sample, 
you just can, you now can be uh, very, very assured, just like COVID. Right. We've taken all of genetic variations in our test and put it in that one line. So there is no A if you didn't find it. You make sense for you? That does. And that's really incredible. Yes. And, and another, is- another understanding I have is that this is, the, this is the only test that looks for both AA and PG at a 10 copy level versus everything yeah. else that's at least 100. We've improved. Thank you for reminding me of that because that's another thing. Um, again, when we first started the, the concept of testing using DNA-PCR, I, I had to build that um, report and I also had to build an antibiotic matrix. And I also had to come up with the, well, how many copies in a sample are relative? Right. So when we are looking at a DNA sample using polymerase chain reaction, we have to determine what is our level of detection. So does one microorganism in a sample, is that relative, is it clinical, rel, clinical relative to you as a clinician? Uh, as far as its ability to cause disease. The literature does not make that plain because when we look at other forms of testing that are out there today, some of them are look, don't even touch AA at something like 10,000 copies <laughs> or 1,000 copies. So although there are other laboratories that are saying, well, we're looking for these, if they are not using this particular model, they can say, well, gosh, I can look for 200 species and that would be fine, but is it relevant? But then secondly, um, what's your cutoff line? What is your level of, your det- of, of detection? So that was one thing I wanted to improve. And so what we did is we think, and I don't know exactly, I, I do know something about uh, some of the others and I'm not here to talk about the others, but what I am saying is I wanted the level of detection as low as humanly possible. So when you send in a sample, if there are 10 copies in one milliliter of saliva, we will find it. And if it's at 10 to the third or 10 to the fifth or 10 to the sixth, we'll give you a coefficient that will tell you exactly how many copies we found in that saliva sample of one milliliter. So it may be as many as a million bacteria in that one, or it may literally be as many as a hundred million pathogens in that one sample of one organism in one milliliter of, of saliva. But then think about the entire mouth. How much saliva is there? How many organs are there? We know, again, from the Human Microbiome Project that just bacteria alone, a healthy individual has roughly 6 billion bacteria, 100 trillion in the body itself, but in the mouth, at least 6 billion in a healthy mouth. But unhealthy mouths have maybe trillions of organisms. So the point I make, and I appreciate you bringing that up, is level of detection is extremely important. Just like in any other laboratory report, I want to know if my lipids are high, but I also want to know how accurate that report is. Right. Sensitive is it? You know, how specific is it? And 
Will, is it really telling me at the lowest level possible that my lipids are, can I, can I actually trust that report? Right. So, uh, yes, that's another thing that we wanted to do. And I, I oftentimes say when uh, people ask me about, well, Tom, you know, you used to look for 11, and that's a story in itself, because when I first brought up the 11, um, I had people saying, well, why aren't you looking for 40? Because Zekransky and Hathaway were looking for 40. And I said, well, we don't need to look for 40 because they've already thrown the rest of them out. All we need to look at is at these 11. And now people would say, well, Tom, you started with 11. Now you're at five. Aren't you going backwards? And I said, well, really, we aren't. We are actually kind of making it easier for the clinician and easier for the patient. We're making it more dramatic. We're making it more sensitive. We're making uh, it more um, important relative to the science and the genetic variations. And once you understand that this is a very complicated report, but it's been made very simple right. to understand by the clinician and by the patient. And so I hope that helps to understand why we only have five. It absolutely it does. And I and I really am appreciative of the level of detection being what it is because yeah. and, and I know we're going to talk more about this, but yeah. I think a foundation of salivary testing is not only doing the pre-testing, but also the post-testing to ensure that our therapeutic, that our, that our modality worked. Absolutely and, right. and so that sensitivity is really important in that and being able to really see the impact we've made. Well, thank you for all of those very, very good comments. I'd like to make a comment too about concentration. And if you look at, you've used the world DNA, and if you notice, it starts out at 10 to the third, but right. we start at 10 to the first. And so there's about 300 organisms difference between uh, those two there. But the point I want to make here is that concentration of A and PG particularly is critical. And and as we look at studies relative concentration, what we have learned is you can take PG. We know more about PG than we know any of the others. We do know a lot about AA, it's just that we don't see AA as much because it's just, people are not as infected with that as much, although we will see it more in this new test because we are now detecting it lower and we're detecting all the genetic variations. But the point I want to make is there are studies that have shown that if a patient has 0.01% of the entire biofilm community made up of PG, it will share its genetic virulence to 99.98% of the other. In other words, the entire other microorganisms will be infected, infective type organisms due to gene transfer. It takes very few PG based on the entire number and very few AA to change the entire environment of the oral biofilm community. So I'm a big believer today. And when I first started the test concept, we created a model where we said, uh, well, some people here are, you know, the cutoff line. You remember the, you know, the black line where we call it? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, even though we have somewhat of a threshold on our new report, in the training that I would spend more time with, maybe we can do this at another time and, and spend more time on that. Some people can do well with thresh when their bacterial level is below the threshold. And you've probably seen this, but some people don't. Right. So, so thresholds originated from a 10-year long, longitudinal trial based on observation of these specific pathogens over time. 
And so the original threshold line that I created on the first report was based on a 10-year longitudinal trial. But just think about that because there were roughly 600 people in this trial. And so when you average 600 people into a line, then some people were above the line, some people were below the line. Right. What does that mean? The threshold really is an indicator of alveolar bone loss. And basically what they were saying is if you were above the threshold, it's very predictive of alveolar bone loss. But if you were below the threshold, it was not as predictive for alveolar bone loss. And so it's really directed toward that. But what, I, what I've discovered, and I'm, you probably have too, and that is that some people can have very few members of AA and still be infected. And so I'm a big believer now of total elimination of A and PG. I think that some people can do quite well with TF and with uh, TD, although I would prefer they not have right. those. Uh, some people do very well. In fact, I would say everybody does very well with high numbers of FN if the red complex have been eliminated. And Aye. so that is an outlier. That's a whole different story. And so in creating our antibiotic matrix for this one, we've allowed for the genetic variations of FN, those that are healthy, and also whether it's in conjunction with PG, because FN, you know, FN is the bridge, so to speak, of the colonization of the early colonizers to the late colonizers. And so FN is a very important part. But as you know, too, with uh, Brad, Dr. Bale and Dunning's uh, work, it's a very serious because it opens the endothelial cells right. to allow for the monocytes and macrophages and the lipids to go through and other bacteria. So that's a whole other story in, in, um, in itself as well. But you're exactly right in, in, in that we need to talk about that threshold, but individualize that. Right. Realizing that that line is not concrete. And when you look at it on other reports, be aware that you have to make that decision as a clinician, how important that line is. If they are diabetic, if they've had a heart attack, if they've had a stroke, if they have diabetes, uh, I would never allow A and PG to continue. Got it. Well, and I just, you know, I say over and over, I've been practicing for 25 years. I mean, there's no cookie cutter approach. Every patient is different. So mm -hmm. And that's what I love about salivary testing is it really gives you the true picture. Um, I have a side question just as you're talking and I'm thinking, so I know FN is very strongly implicated in pregnancy, you know, adverse pregnancy outcomes. Yeah. Is, are you seeing that that also has to have PG as a, as a counter partner or is FN dangerous in pregnancy alone or does that seem to be okay? Yes. Well, there, that's a terrific question. Um, I don't know whether you remember um, Dr. Yiping Han. Yes, yes, Han. Yes, Yiping Han. Yes. Dr. Han, you know, is at Columbia and she's the world, probably the world's authority on FN. Um, I keep in contact with her from time to time. She sends me articles, and, but she won't answer those types of questions for me. <laughs> but here's what I have observed. And two things I want to say about a clinical laboratory report and the physical examination, they go together. Correct. And what I mean by that is you can't visually see these pathogens and make a decision anymore. And secondly, you can't use the report without the visual examination to make decisions. They go together. And so what I have discovered after looking at over 40,000 reports is that FN in a healthy mouth without red complex bacteria tends to be very health associated. 
Okay. What I would also say is, since we're not dividing FN into health associated and virulent associated, with always compare that with your clinical signs. Right. If it can't get into the bloodstream, it can't cause and Correct. it can't pass the placental barrier. So you don't need to worry about it. So you see what I'm saying? Yes. So I always, um, would, again, go back to you as the clinician, as the, uh, let's say the expert in treating your patient always has to take into consideration the medical history, the past history, the family history, <laughs> period history, and all of that relative to how you feel about the presence of FN or A and PG and so forth. What I've discovered is that once we eliminate high-risk bacteria, FN goes up. Goes up. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And so FN is a friendly bacteria in that condition. But if it's in the presence of PG, it becomes pathogenic. It blows up. Got it. Okay. Well, Maya Angelou has a really great quote. She says, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. There you go. And I really want our listeners to know better when it comes to oral pathogens and their capabilities. And from my my experience listening to you lecture over the years, I know that you have a very deep understanding of the complexities of the oral systemic link that I truly am in awe of. And I've sat in your classes and and I get to the point where I feel like I don't think he's speaking English anymore. So I I love that you know as much as you know. Um, And I know that some of our listeners may not have been exposed to all the recent research and findings on how oral pathogens pose such a direct threat to our total health and wellness. Um, And honestly, in the hustle and bustle of our ever shrinking hour of treating patients and all that that entails, it gets really easy to rush past those initial stages of gingivitis with those red puffy gums or light bleeding and just tell our patients to step up their home care. And if it gets worse, then, then, you know, we'll, we'll see what they look like next time and maybe do more. Can you, can you speak to what you know about oral pathogens and the inflammatory cascade? In, in other words, yes. why, why that initial stage of redness and puffy gums or light bleeding really matters so much? Wow, what a wonderful question. And so we have to, let's break the immune system down into the, adapt, uh, to the innate system and then to, into the adaptive system. So we've all looked at when we were going through our training, uh, these illustrations of a cross-section of the gingival tissue and the tooth, and then looked at that one cell lining that we call the gingival uh, tissue inside the pocket there. And then when we look at the histological slide, there's an army on the other side of it. And there's a whole lining there of white blood cells. And so those white blood cells there are designed to capture those small number of microorganisms that are coming through the lining as long as the lining is there. You see what I'm saying? But when the lining is broken, then that entire defensive mechanism then is inundated with uh, millions and if not billions of organisms. But here's the unique thing about that. When we look at a cell such as a white blood cell, it may have as many as 200,000 receptors. And some of these receptors are called toll-like receptors or TLRs. And there are a number of different ways these toll-like receptors react based on inflammation. Now, let's take an organism then that's coming through the 
uh, broken system that we, that what we would call, uh, there's no gingival attachment around the tooth anymore. And we have this bad organism coming through and then we have the army see it. Well, guess what? This uh, bad guy <clears throat> has a pattern on its outside surface and it's called a pathogen associated molecular pattern or a PAM. So this pattern is recognized by this <laughs> defensive organism by the receptor. They actually join together like a key and lock position. This defensive organ, organ called a white blood cell will recognize the pathogenic potential of this organism and then will determine which receptor it will fire. So, like Tolac receptor 2 fires a different type of an inflammatory uh, mechanism, Tolac receptor 4, Tolac receptor 6. So the body knows how to react to the pathogenic potential and the threat. So if inflammation will be determined by pathogen-associated associated molecular pattern and the Tolac receptor's response to that pattern. That would determine the degree of inflammation. And the toll-like receptor number will determine to what extent it will go systemically. Toll-like receptor four, as an example, is, is highly recognized as going into very, very serious uh, inflammatory pathways. So there are three inflammatory pathways we're concerned about. And that is uh, interleukin one, interleukin two, and interleukin 17. So, each pathogen that we are talking about will create a toll-like receptor response and as well as a interleukin response. The AA and PG create a toll-like receptor 4 response, which ultimately ends up in an IL-17 inflammatory pathway. That's where you get alveolar bone loss. So, TF and TD will tend to create a toll-like receptor 2 response, and that you don't get as much alveolar bone loss around TF and TD. That's why some people can do quite well with small numbers of TF and TD and not have a lot of alveolar bone loss. So we've all asked the question, why does Mrs. Smith, who never brushes, or let's say Mr. Smith, who brush, never brushes and flosses, he has calculus everywhere and never has bone loss. But why does Mrs. Smith come in? She always brushes and flosses and she's always getting more bone loss. You got what I'm saying? Yes. So the immunity and the pathogen relationship, of course, other things that deal with that too, diabetes and so forth. But just these same relationships based on the pathogen recognition patterns and the molecular patterns of the bacteria sets in motion our body's response to whether it's going to create alveolar bone loss and, and what the systemic inflammation is going to be like. Does that help? Yes, yes. And, and so, yeah, so it's and, very important that we know that. Well, and what I hear you saying too, and I think we don't think about this enough, um, you know, I, I know what, what happens across the nation with, with us kind of getting in, in a hurry and, and yeah. having patients, you know, yeah. being yeah. insurance driven and, right. um, you know, all the things that we come up against. But in reality, 
you know, that cell wall of protection is very thin. And so what I hear you saying is once that patient is already in a visible inflammatory state, we're seeing the redness, we're seeing the inflammation, we're seeing the bleeding, that barrier has already been broken. It has. And then then I think to follow that from a logical standpoint, then for us to go in and disrupt all of that biofilm that's in there, mechanically creates that bacteremia issue where now we are stirring all that up to an already open wall for all of those bacteria to go into. So when we, when we do our patients the disservice of doing a bloody prophy, we really are exposing them to a lot of potential infections systemically. I love, love, again, you're making so many good points. It reminds me of a uh, Dr. Leroy Hood. Dr. Hood is a PhD and he's been looking at medicine for a long time. And in 2012, he wrote a really good article um, and it was called P4 Medicine. And the four P's, in other words, P4, the P stand for uh, predict, prevent, personalize, and participatory. Participatory means that we have to have the patient join us in the other three, predict, prevent, and personalize. And so I've been attempting to apply all of that model to testing, and we can do that. And that brings us to the concept that has been published now. And by the way, most of the really good literature published on periodontal pathogens is not in demo literature. It's in things like cell immunity, and it's in things like circulation, but particularly when we look at cell biology and cell immunity, that's where we really learn about pathogen potential and the specificity related to all of these organisms here. But getting back to your point, there's a new term that has been coined, and it's called subclinical infection. And that brings us to your point, and that is is it possible for us to have a disease and have no clinical presentation of it? Well, atherosclerotic vascular disease or heart disease is a perfect example of that. So you have all of these things going in the vascular system. You don't know that it's occurring. And the event is heart attack or stroke. So that's the clinical. So the subclinical is what's going on. That's the reason that we love Dr. Bale and Donin, Dr. Donin so much because they taught us about subclinical heart disease and that once we have subclinical heart disease, that's reversible. We don't have to live with heart disease, totally reversible. We don't have to wait for diabetes because it takes 20 years for diabetes to occur roughly. In other words, we're pre-diabetic, we can reverse that. Right. Once we have a heart attack, we can't reverse that. Once we've had a stroke, we can't reverse that. But if we know before that we have preclinical disease, we can control that. Same thing is true periodontal disease. I am totally convinced periodontal begins depending on the age of the child that becomes pathogenic due to their parents. I know know that for sure. And the reason I say that, I've seen children as as young as 7 years old, 11 years old, 17 years old with the same pathogen complex as their parent. Is that your time? Is that time? No, nope, nope, you're good. Gotcha. You're good. So, so what I'm saying is periodontal disease, much like diabetes, it takes years for us to develop an immune response that we ultimately end up alveolar bone loss. It begins in mixed dentition. It also um, 
unerupted thermolars are a perfect site for these things to uh, live. Our tongue is a good place for them to live. Our tonsils are a good place to live. So when I first started testing as a clinician, who did I want to test? Well, I wanted to test those patients that were failing. I, you know, that's where I started. Why weren't these patients getting better? But once when I found out that they were still infected and some of them had been infected for 30 years that none of us knew, we, could, we found that we could heal those infections, even though they'd been infected that long. <clears throat> you see what I'm saying? Yes. So, so I backed up to the point now to ask the question, ideally, who should we test? Well, when you think about it, if there's such a thing as subclinical disease and periodontal disease takes anywhere from 10 to 20 years to develop albedo bone loss, because we exfoliate our baby teeth, our permanent teeth come in, we're young, our immune system is high, and our teeth have only been a short period of time, and it takes a long time for this immune process to start. As the CDC starts with age 30 or 35, we should be starting with any family member, um, any child whose family member has these high-risk pathogens. If I were in practice today, I would test everybody just as well, I would take x-rays. We have adopted x-rays as a way of seeing things that we could not ever see before. It's the standard of care. I'm totally convinced that our world has to go to saliva testing, just like we've gone to blood testing and urine testing to find out whether or not we have subclinical disease. And by the way, we can predict periodontal disease by these organisms we can prevent periodontal disease from ever happening, and we can personalize the therapy just on this one test. Yeah. And we get the patient involved. You're speaking my language. I, I, I am honestly hopeful that this is where our profession is going. Me too. Where, where just like the x-rays that we rely on, we've got to look at that invisible enemy that's, that's yeah. hanging yeah. out in there. We, we can't really fight that if we don't know what we're up against. Yes. So yes. I, I absolutely hope this is where we're going. Um, uh, I, I have a question with your opinion on bacteremia, because I've had this conversation with some hygienists yes. that feel like, and, and I'm just really curious about your opinion on this. Um, I've had a conversation where I have said, you know, to me, if I have a patient in my chair, that's high risk, you know, they're, they're uncontrolled diabetic, they've got history of heart attack, stroke, um, you know, pregnancy, gingivitis going on, you know, something that's, that's high risk, arthritis, flare, whatever. I don't want to get in there and perform scaling and root planing because of the bacteremia that I'm concerned about, because in our practice, we use perioprotect. So I'll use that as kind of a first approach along with salivary testing. We, you know, and if they need systemic antibiotics. So I I like to do all of that before I get in and do my SRP, because I feel like from what I've understand under what I understand the studies show that the most virulent bacteria live at the very base of the sulcus. So when I go in to do my SRP, the bacteremia I'm creating is much more risky than what a patient is creating for themselves with their toothbrush and floss. I've had some other hygienists kind of say to me in the past, well, you know, they're already doing that themselves with their home care, but from my understanding, it's not as, as risky as what we are doing as clinicians. 
I agree. And what we're doing too is we're doing a much more, actually it's a surgical procedure. We call it non-surgical right. disease, but anytime we go in there with a sharp instrument and start digging around tissue, it bleeds. That's in a sense, let's say a, a minimal invasive non-surgical procedure right. as opposed to a complete non-surgical. Well, there are two models here and I respect both of them. And Again, this is a learning process, I think, for all of us. I love the idea that you just made reference to there. And so when I'm speaking to groups, I take a, let's say, a pretty neutral position relative to the model that you are doing. I do encourage us all to protect the uh, vascular system every way we possibly can. A cardiologist that I have very deep respect for who is part of the Baldonin model and who also uh, works with the dentist. Uh, they have their uh, practice together. Uh, his his uh, position on it is that every perio patient, even though they're not using perioprotect, but that they are put on antibiotics prior to scaling and root planing, and that way protecting the arterial system, although they sometimes do use perioprotect. And so what I would suggest is to the clinician However, your treatment model is protect the vascular system in some way. Now, uh, there are also that say, uh, I know, uh, never use a systemic antibiotic and reserve that for really severe infections. I heard that 10 years ago. Well, today, I think periodontal disease is a, is a severe infection. And the reason I say that is for the very reason that we're talking. When it's there, the immune system, the A and PG causes uh, through the IL-17 pathway is a very aggressive and it influences every inflammatory mechanism that is there. So I'm, I, I'm guessing I'm taking a very neutral position here. In other words, not to validate that one treatment is better than another, but right. to say whatever your philosophy is, protect the vascular system. And if I have a patient that has a history of heart disease or has a systemic, I'm going to put them on antibiotics before I do my scaling and replanting, and I'm going to finish everything while they are on the specific antibiotic. I know there's a specific risk associated with GI. I will tell you in my 40 years of clinical practice, I never had a patient that was hospitalized for using an eight day duration of using a systematic antibiotic. I can probably count on the number on my one hand, the number of patients that actually I had to take off the antibiotic and change them to a different antibiotic. I never had an allergic response such as a very severe allergic response. So yes, we should be very careful. But the result reports that we make available today specify the type of antibiotic that's more, more, susceptible, more suitable for the situation that is there. Highly respect what you're doing there, and I, and I understand it, and I certainly agree that that's a very good way to protect the vascular system. You will, dip, you will get less bleeding, obviously, once you've right. used the trays, the tissues have shrunk back. Right. But I would also say that there are times when you do get some bleeding because you have to get deep enough to get right. Yes. So you're still protecting, and so let's all do that for sure. Right. So from all of your years of research and pouring through these reports, and just from the conversation we've had thus far, what I hear you saying is um, that you would hope, based on all that you know, that we as clinicians would start to test every patient from the get-go. But then also retest the patient after our therapeutics to ensure that what we've done has truly achieved the results we're going for. It's truly the medical model. And, you know, we all agree 
that we, and we are also used to having blood pressure, I mean, blood drawn. And let's take something as simple as, let's say, a lipid disorder where someone has high LDL and they are putting on a stat, put on a, placed on a statin medication. Well, they don't say goodbye to you forever. They say, you know, um, let's see if this is working. And so they have you come back at an X point in time. What do they do? They redraw blood and they want to determine where your LDL, I'm going to use that as an example. So guess what? It doesn't always work the first time. And so that's one thing that hygienists and dentists have to realize. And that is medicine treating infections of this type do not always accomplish an endpoint of treatment that is the most desirable. And as Dr. Bale and Donine would say, optimal. And I believe in optimal care and everything that I want for me and everything I want to render for you as my patient. And so I, I totally agree that we have to follow the me medical model. And that is, if my lipid medication is performing well, I'll know that on my second test. Right. If it's not, we either increase the dose or we change. And by the way, there's five different statin drugs used to reduce LDL control. So if there was only one drug that would that worked for everybody, we wouldn't need the other four. Right. And right. so that's the reason that it's so good that we have lasers and we have trays and we have antibiotics and we have you know sustain. So we need in our let's say in our armamentarium we need to prepare that if this isn't working with this patient, let's go to another route. Correct. Because we need to get an optimal endpoint of therapy, and it's only that second test that really tells us where that actually is going to occur. Right. So I can imagine that uh, many of my listeners right now yeah. are feeling a little cringy, a little <laughs> uncomfortable, because what we're talking about today is that a lot of what we've been doing for a long time yeah. is not truly a, in, a, effective at you know, really ensuring our patients' total health and wellness. And you know, especially understanding that some of these pathogens are SRP resistant you know, that's the biggest, scariest sentence I think we've said today, you know, because we've been thinking all this time, well, hey, I'm doing the best thing I, I can do for this patient, but it's, I'm not really getting there. So I, you know, again, I've been practicing 25 years and there's, there's a little bit of cringe in me like, okay, so what I'm hearing is we got to, we got to revamp the system. And that creates that kind of uncomfortable scenario with, well, how do we even do this? Yeah. And a lot of it is really, truly educating our patients and helping them understand why we're making this shift. Absolutely. But what would you say to those listeners that are kind of thinking, yeah, this, this, you know, <laughs> relatively sounds good, but how do I actually implement this? And, and how do we really make this happen? Very good point. Well, a couple of things that I would say based on what you just said there is number one, what I've learned is what we can see is not as important as what we can't see. It's what we can't see that really makes the difference between whether or not we've achieved optimal care or not. And I will say as, let's say blood pressure medication, we can't always achieve everybody below 120 on the systolic and below 80 on the other, just impossible. No, not everybody gets there. Right. But we can achieve that as, oh, we can make that an achievable goal for most of our patients. Same thing is true with periodontal disease. The most important thing that we do is make sure we clear these high-risk pathogens. 
is it possible that they may have a little bleeding or they may have a pocket or whatever? Yeah, we can deal with those, you know, on an individual basis. And so what I would suggest, and number one, I'd love to work with you and Brittany too, to help maybe in your model, um, help you uh, in your training model, I'll be glad to help you with that, to help your listeners understand how to use the test, how to apply the test. You've already, you already know how to do that. But I, if it's okay, I would say go to our website and, yes. and there on our website, Direct Diagnostics, I have two or three uh, webinars. Um, I have an introduction to the science and then I have a practical application. And I show a lot of cases before and after of what we saw in the beginning. And some of these patients have been treated multiple times before they came to see us or see my son. As you know, my son's a dentist too. And yes. he's been following this example for a long time to go to the website and we have a lot of interesting videos. Some are short, some are longer, but that'll help. But I would also encourage your listeners to listen to you and to listen to Brittany. And uh, you've got a, a model that you've already built into the testing model. And what we can do to help you is for those that want to know more about it, however you want me to help you with that, I'm happy, happy to help you with that. Awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I am super, super appreciative of your time with us today. And, and you, you mentioned several things that we might have to revisit. So we might have to have you back again with us. I'm always excited to do that. That's kind of, the, I had a love affair with uh, periodontal disease and, and please take this in the right, right way. I do have a love affair for hygienists. Mm-hmm. I think you are the nurse practitioners of our industry and that uh, at some day you're going to be called that. And, uh, but that's the way I see you. Awesome. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate all the work and time you've put in and your passion for it, because I, I truly, like I said, I think this is where our future is headed. And I think you've been a big part of the catalyst. So that's what, a, what an amazing legacy that is. Well, thank you. Can I make one more Please. statement? I, I know your time is, but I was watching TV um, a year or so ago, and this kind of has stuck with me. I am a golfer. I love golf. And they were honoring a golfer and his name um, was, is, is Lee. And I'm just going to use his first name. Uh, Lee was the first African-American uh, golfer to play in a PGA tournament in 1972. And the Masters tournament is considered the uh, premier golf tournament uh, in the United States. And every year in the Masters tournament, they have particular individuals who have a history such as, let's say, Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer as starters, and they hit the first ball. With this year, they invited Lee Elder. Mr. Elder is now in his late 70s, and he was a professional golfer all his life. Well, he was the first African-American not only to play in the professional golf series, but also the only one that's been invited to be a starter in this particular tournament and this notorious tournament. And in the interview, they said, Mr. Elder, how would you like to be remembered? And he thought for a moment and he said, I wanna be remembered simply like this, that I made a difference. So think about your hygienist colleagues, your dentist colleagues, why do we do what we do? We do what we do ultimately to feel like that we made a difference. And unfortunately in dental hygiene, we oftentimes see the same patients with the same problems and we get frustrated and we say, I'm not making a difference. 
the single thing that created the biggest difference in my life, two things, the microscope and then ultimately this report, because this report finally told us what is causing these diseases and, and, if we, and we, we can control it. So I'd encourage all of us to think we can make a difference, but sometimes it does require a change in the process that we're doing. So thank you for the difference you're making and Melissa, I mean, yeah, is that right, Melissa? No, Brittany, Brittany. Yeah. that Brittany is uh, making also, and for all of you who are listening, so thank you for the difference you're making. Well, thank you, Dr. Neighbors, and for any of our listeners who want to know more, um, I want to point you there. The website is www.directdiagnostics.com. Um, check that out. Spend some time digging in and come visit Brittany and I, if you haven't already, uh, you download the Mighty Network app. It's a free app and just look up Bulletproof Hygiene. And if you need help trying to figure this out or you've got more questions, please hop on, shoot us some questions. Let's talk about it. Let's do this together. You know, this is a collaboration. So I hope that everyone has had their eyes opened and has started to feel this passion and this excitement for the change that's coming our way. Let's figure out how to do it together. Thank you so much, Dr. Neighbors. And we will, we will see our, or visit our listeners next week. Everybody have a great week. Thank you, Carissa. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.